Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Psalm 37, fret not yourself. Uh, Summer in the Psalms here, and every psalm is just so good. Uh, I had Ray sent me, uh, Ray Yoder sent me one yesterday that had really spoken to him. It said, uh, I am brutish like an animal. And uh, that had been the one that spoke to him in his devotions yesterday. I said, okay, that's good that that spoke to you. But uh, uh, there's so many good psalms, and they're so applicable, and, and so they just touch us, right? If you're going through a tough time, the psalms is the best place to be. And uh, so I just want to read you Psalm 37. is a longer psalm. It's got about 40 verses. Not about. It does have 40 verses. And uh, so I'm not going to read you all 40 here. I'm going to read you nine, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll get into this. But let me read you the first nine verses here. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Uh, Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What a wonderful promise. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Let's pray and we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, you are good. We thank you for how you've been with uh, mom and dad this summer again, helping them as they work so hard and on this whole church renewal thing. We pray that you would protect them and bring them back to us uh, safe and healthy and recharged. And Lord Jesus, as we meditate on Psalm 37 this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit, there's a thousand different applications needed here in this room this morning. And I pray that you would take this word, one word that's spoken to many, but that you would take it and you would apply it to each of our hearts in a way that we need it, that you would give each of us hope, that you would speak to each of us in a special way by the power of your Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. So a little background here on Psalm 37. Uh, David would have been somewhere in his late 40s to mid-50s when he wrote this psalm. And we know that because of what he says in verse 25 where he says, I have been young and now am old, uh, yet I have seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. That was supposed to be funny, but obviously it wasn't. Um, (laughs) So David is older. He's in his later life here as he writes this psalm. Uh, Psalm 37, interesting thing about Psalm 37 is... Psalm 37 is an acrostic poem, and what that means is we, can't, we don't see that in the, in the English, uh, but in the Hebrew, what that means, how this poem is, is put together is that each of the stanzas is put together, starts with a word that starts with the, uh, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes from A to Z, except that the Hebrew alphabet isn't A to Z, but they're equivalent of A to Z. Okay, and this is important to realize, an acrostic poem Um, because it's not organized, Psalm 37 isn't organized according to logical, you know, logical progression of ideas. A lot of chapters in the Bible, uh, for example, two weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 69, uh, when we looked at Psalm 69, we looked at this progression, how to deal with your anger. Um, And so we looked at, you know, you start here kind of, and you move your way through to hope and worship. 
Um, most of the chapters in the Psalms, most of the chapters in the Bible work like that. It's a logical progression of ideas. Either it's a story or, you're, or it's teaching something and you start here, you work your way through to here. And it's important that you go through the chapter in order. In Psalm 37, which is an acrostic poem, David hasn't organized this poem according to logical ideas. He's organized it according to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And it, it made it easier for them to memorize in those days. And, but what that means is, as you're reading it, is uh, you, I mean, it, certain ideas just get repeated over and over and over again. He's got two or three really important themes to him, but it's not like they work through in a five-step progression or a ten-step progression. You can, it, it's Psalm 37, you can kind of read in whatever order you want because it's just he's organized it according to the letters of the alphabet. If you're wondering where those stanzas fit, we've kind of lost it in our English versions, but it's, it's basically kind of every other verse is a new stanza. So if you were reading it in Hebrew, you would see you know, a couple of verses. That first one would start with you know, the letter A, and the next one would be the equivalent of the letter B, and so on and so far. If you have a, if you have a Bible like mine, uh, my ESV Bible actually uh, divides it, in, has little spaces, so you can see where the original... Uh, Hebrew stanzas are and where they would have, where they would have gone. There's actually nine. Just to just for a little bit of uh, background information, there's actually nine acrostic poems in the Psalms. Chapters nine, ten, twenty-five, thirty-four. This one, thirty-seven, hundred eleven, hundred twelve, hundred nineteen. So the one that uh, that uh, Tom did last week is also an acrostic uh, poem in one forty-five. Also, Proverbs thirty-one verses ten to thirty-one, which is a famous passage. It's about the uh, the godly wife. You know the famous one about, you know, uh, the woman, and uh, it's amazing. Actually, that, those 21 verses about the, the godly woman or the godly wife is actually also an acrostic in the original Hebrew. And the book of Lamentations is five chapters. The first four are all acrostic poems. And actually, uh, when you, if you do a little research on it, it's amazing the amount of work, uh, in this case, David writing. The book of Lamentations is written by uh, Jeremiah. But in these psalms that are written as acrostic poems, the amount of work, it's actually, it's not just, and I, and I can't get into all of it now, but not only are, you know, is each of these stanzas tied to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but in the number of words in the Hebrew, the number of letters used and the number of words used, it all follows a pattern, uh, which is really amazing. So this poem, uh, you know, David would have put a lot of work into it. He's a, he was actually incredibly skilled to be able to do something like this. But again, we lose uh, pretty much all of that uh, reading it, it, it in uh, English today. Um, but anyway, the main theme of Psalm 37, so it doesn't follow a progression. There's no 10-step, you know, plan to whatever in this psalm. And, and basically what you've got to do when you have an acrostic poem like this is you, you can just look. It'll be, it'll be a little bit scattershot. He'll have two or three main ideas, and he'll just hit them over and over and over again throughout the whole poem. And so the main theme of Psalm 37, I'm, I'm kind of oversimplifying it, but this is sort of, if you, if you really boil Psalm 37 down, the main idea or theme is basically, don't fret yourself about all the wicked people in this world. God is going to bring justice in the end and turn everything for good. Okay, that's basically the theme. And then what he does is then he just ties it to the letters of the alphabet and he goes through it again and again and again. And he has a number as he meditates here in Psalm 37. He has a number of really profound, deep thoughts. We don't even have time in one message to go into them all. But he has a number of profound thoughts and observations to make about this truth and applications to make uh, that are, are really amazing. So just to show you a, a couple of verses in the first nine verses, uh, he uses this, uh, this phrase, fret not yourself, three times, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, 
Uh, Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Now the, the, the Hebrew word there translated over and over again, fret is the Hebrew word chara, and, uh, or something like that could be, it's spelled kara, but it's more like chara. And, uh, and basically what it means is it means to, it, it has the, the connotations of burning with anger. It's not, it's not a quick anger, but it's an ongoing, it's, it's grievous. Okay, so there's this idea of, of grieving, of, uh, there's an idea of anxiety maybe tied in there a little bit, of anger that goes on for a while, getting really worked up. He says, fret not yourself um, because of evildoers. God, David doesn't want us, he doesn't want godly people to spend all their time being consumed with worry and anger and frustration over all the wickedness and the wicked people and the godlessness that's going on uh, all around us. And uh, a couple things about that. First of all, that this tells us, first of all, the fact that David wrote a psalm like this means David struggled with this, okay? The fact that David wrote a whole psalm, and like I said, this, this poem was not something he just sat down and scrawled out. Again, if you, if you really research into the Hebrew, I, like I was actually amazed, I was shocked. The, this, just in terms of the patterns, in terms of number of letters he would use, number of words, and how it all flowed and fits together like a puzzle using the Hebrew alphabet, it's incredible really what he's done here. So this poem took him, unless God just struck him over the head and gave it to him, um, which, I mean, that could also happen too, but usually God doesn't work quite that way. Uh, he spent a lot of time on this poem. And what that tells us is that David knew what it was like to fret about evil people. That's why he's writing this, okay? He knew what it was like to be anxious, to be worried, to be consumed with anger and frustration over the godlessness going on around him. And so he writes down this poem. Secondly, the fact that the Holy Spirit included this in the scriptures means that this is a common experience for God's people. The fact, that, the fact that the Holy Spirit would inspire David to write a poem like this and the fact that David would write it down, that the Holy Spirit would ensure that it gets into our scriptures shows that this is a common experience. This, this experience of fretting about evil about godless people, about a wicked culture all around us. That experience is going to be common to God's people in this world. That's why we have this, this chapter 37. And of course, actually, it pops up, this theme pops up in many of the Psalms. But in particularly today, we're talking about Psalm 37. Now, before I go out and get any further, I want to just say one quick caveat. Uh, some people would take this chapter too far. They would say, fret not yourself about evil and about wickedness, about godlessness, and some Christians might take that as, ah, we just be, now we're just casual about wickedness in this world. You know, there's godlessness going on around us. Ah, who cares? It's not a big deal. That is not what David is talking about here. He's not talking about now as Christians we get to this place where it's no big deal, all this wickedness. It's no big deal when God's laws are trampled in the streets. It's no big deal when lies are being spread and truth is not winning out. It's not that we don't think it's a big deal. In fact, If we follow Jesus, as we talked about two weeks ago in Psalm 69, there's a place for righteous anger. If we walk closely with Jesus, I mean, Jesus himself got angry sometimes, if you read the Gospels. So there's a place when a a godly person who walks with Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, and when you hear, when, when lies are winning out over truth, when darkness is winning out over light, when God's laws are being trampled in the streets, there should be something that rises up in us 
that is a godly, righteous anger. If that godly, righteous anger isn't there, it actually shows that something is wrong in our hearts. Okay? So David's not saying we shouldn't have a righteous anger at bad things. But what he's saying is there's a place where you can go where you swing too far and you carry that anger around with you all the time. And now your life becomes consumed with frustration. Your life becomes consumed with anxiety. Your life becomes consumed with anger. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying, you know, when you hear of something bad happen, when you hear of injustice, when you hear of wicked people getting away with wicked things in this world, he's not saying, oh, it doesn't matter. What he's saying is, there, yeah, have a, have a righteous response of anger, but that's not how we walk through life filled with anger. We need to feel righteous anger. We need to go back to peace because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. We need to feel righteous anger. We need to go back to peace. We need to go back to love. We need to go back to joy. We can't carry it around all the time. That's what David's talking about in this psalm. Fret not yourself. Don't be consumed with worry and anger and anxiety and all that. I want to say one more thing here as well that he says in verse 1. I just highlighted it there. It's up there already. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. He says, be not envious of wrongdoers. You see that there in, in verse, at the end of verse 1. Be not envious of wrongdoers. This is another form of fretting ourselves about evil. Now you say, well, who would be envious of wrongdoers, right? Like when we just have that label, wrongdoers, uh, who would who'd be, they, you know, nobody here, we wouldn't think that we're, we would ever be envious of wrongdoers. But if, I think if we bring this into the real world a little bit, we'll see that I think often Again, this is a common experience. David experienced envy of wrongdoers, and the Holy Spirit put this in the Bible because it's actually it's common, I think, for God's people sometimes to envy wrongdoers. And you say, when would, when would a person envy wrongdoers? Well, for some of you, maybe you have family members who have rejected God. I, I'm, I'm sure, actually, probably most of us have family members somewhere who have rejected God. Now, in some of those cases where family members have rejected God, have you ever had this experience? Family member rejects God, you kind of subconsciously feel inside, now watch what's going to happen. Because if they reject God, they're going to have a terrible life and you'll be able to show your kids. See, when you reject God, this is what happens. You better keep going to church and being good, right? And so uh, that's kind of what we think in, in some ways, right? We want to show our kids that's what godlessness is. And look, we're godly and look at how our lives are. But isn't it frustrating sometimes when you have family members, let's say, or friends even or whatever, totally reject God, totally godless, anti-God, really opposed to him, and then they have a good life. And it's like they might have a decent marriage. They might be prosperous in all kinds of ways. They are quite happy because you've always told your kids, you know, if you reject God, you're going to just be miserable right away. And then there's this person in your extended family or whatever somewhere in your life, and they've utterly rejected God. They're anti-God, and they actually have a pretty good life. Meanwhile, you might not be having such a great life. They seem on the outside to have a great marriage. Your marriage might be struggling. They seem to be happy all the time. You seem to have emotional problems. You go, what's going on here? See, we have this idea that in this world, godless people always suffer, and, and, and godly people, somehow, it's got to be better for us in this world. And sometimes what can happen in there is actually what creeps in is, well, sometimes actually even a little doubt. Isn't that true? How is it that godless people can be doing so well while I'm suffering, and it almost sneaks in like, is God really real? Like, does this actually make a difference in my life? And envy can creep in. Or maybe you're a business person, you're in business, you're in the marketplace, and you are scrupulous about integrity because you want to do right, and you want to bend over backwards to do always 
the really, really, really ultimately right good thing. And then there's people that you're in competition with and they're cutting corners and they're cheating a little bit here and cheating a little bit there and using dishonesty and they're actually taking business from you as a result of dishonesty. I hear about this all the time. And you go, well, aren't I supposed to be blessed by God for doing the right thing? Like, like, uh, uh, does it, I mean, and then again, doubts can creep in. Is God even real? Like, I'm doing this stuff, but they seem to be do- better off than I am. And David starts this, this chapter off. He says, fret not yourself because of evil doers. Be not envious. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Look what he says in verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. There's a truth you have to really understand and we have to get into our heads is that sometimes in this world, wicked, godless people do prosper. That's just a fact of the matter. That shouldn't shake our faith. Actually, a big part of it is because it's of the mercy of God. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, because of God's mercy, he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. And aren't you glad he doesn't just strike us down when we're not doing right? So it's because of his mercy that often in this world, godless people who reject him can still do well. That shouldn't cause us to question our faith. It shouldn't cause us to question, you know, God and all this sort of stuff. And it most certainly, we don't want to get to that bitter place where we start to doubt and we start to question, we start to envy. And I'll tell you what happens when you begin to be envious of wicked people. Okay? Well, actually, let's, let's go to another perspective David has for us first, and then I'll, I'll show you uh, what begins to happen. Um, so what are we supposed to do in the meantime? So there's this truth, okay? In this world, wicked, godless people sometimes prosper. So now David, this is why David sometimes fretted, because he said, look it, these wicked people are prospering. Um, so truth is, sometimes they do prosper. So what are we supposed to do about that? Well, David wants to give us perspective in this chapter. And one of the things he says over and over and over again throughout this chapter, he really wants us to get at home is this. Perspective number one that's really important is that the time of the wicked is short. The time of the wicked is short. If we go back to verse two there, for they will soon, you know, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So even grass has a season when it's green and healthy. But grass is not an oak tree. Grass is not, you know, a maple tree or a linden tree. It's going to last for a long time. It comes for a season. It does have a season when it does well. It does have a season when it's healthy and green and it looks good and everything's going good for it, and then it withers, right? And so David says, there is a time that the wicked do have a season. Thanks to the mercy of God, the wicked can have a season of prosperity here in this life. But what we need to remember, before we begin to envy them, we need to remember, before we start to get bitter inside, like, what is all this obedience to God doing for me when I'm suffering and they're prospering? Before we get to that bitter place, we need to stop and prayerfully get perspective that the time of the wicked is short. David says this again and again and again. Verse 10, he says, in just a little while. This is how David, David is just taking us through what he went through. When he would begin to get bitter about this fact, he would spend time with the Lord, he would recharge, he would get perspective, and he would remind himself, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. See, the reason we get envious of the wicked is because we think they're better off, but when we get it into our heads, when we understand in our hearts that actually their time is short, you'll switch. This isn't about getting mad at the wicked. This is about actually you'll start to pray for the wicked. Instead of envying them, you're going to pray for them because you're going to realize, whoa, 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 they're not better off than me. Time is short. We We go to our knees and we pray for them. Verse 20, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glories of the pastures. Again, again and again in this chapter, they are compared to grass. They have a season where it looks good. They have a season where they're happy. 
but they're like the glory of the pastors. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Now, this is important for two reasons. First of all, having this perspective, prayerfully coming to this place and getting perspective, the time of the wicked is short, is important for two reasons. First of all, it will keep you from envying the wicked, and that's really important because if you envy the wicked, you're going to emulate the wicked. And what I mean by that is this. When you start to get bitter in your heart and you start to doubt God and you think, how come that person who's godless, everything seems to go right for them. Their marriage is okay. Their emotional life is okay. Their finances are okay. Their health is okay. And for me, all these things are shot. Does God not make any difference in my life? When you start to go down that path, it's only a matter of time. Once the envy creeps in, you're also going to emulate because you're going to think they're better off. You might not emulate everything they do, but you're going to lose motivation to seek after God. And you might begin to emulate that, that business person who's stealing business from you because, you know, they cut corners here and they cheat a little bit, they're a little dishonest, and you think, well, why am I going to go, you know, way above and beyond in integrity and bending over backwards to do the, you know, the crazy right thing to do? You know what? I'm, I can't compete with that. And you start to emulate Envying will lead to emulation. Before you get to envy and emulation, you need to stop and spend time with God and remember that the time of the wicked is short. And when that gets in your mind, you don't want to compromise. You don't want to emulate. You want to pray for them. So important. Now, there's two reasons the time of the wicked is short. First of all, there's actually more than this. I didn't have time for There was actually a couple others in this chapter. But a couple I want to touch on. In this chapter, a couple of reasons why the time of the wicked is short is, first of all, life is short. Life is short. David says this, and he's thinking about a specific person. He said, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man. He's thinking of a specific person in his life. Spreading a man. Remember, David is older when he wrote this psalm. So it's verse 29. He said, now I'm old. So he said, time to observe over years, over decades. And he says, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. So I've seen a guy who was wicked and ruthless and really successful for a long time, like a green laurel tree. He, he did well. He prospered, okay? But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. David said, I saw him. There was a season. Was it 10 years? Was it 20 years? Was it 30 years? There was a season that this wicked, godless, ruthless man who rejected God and didn't pray had much success in his life. And you might have had, during those 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it was, David may have had some of that fretting. He may have had some of that envying. But then he said, I'm old enough now that I saw something. And then he passed away. See, life is actually short. You know, I'm, I'm not that old yet. I'm getting there. I'm middle-aged, okay? Uh, 38 is halfway to 77. I know some people say that's not middle-aged. And they say that they're, they're middle-aged when they're 50 or 55. You're only middle-aged at 50 if you're planning to live to 100, Okay. <laughs> And not many of you are going to make it that far. So, uh, but anyway, um, so I'm 38 now. Thank you. That's what you're saying. Um, so I'm 38 now, you know, long enough, a little bit. So I've seen a bunch of funerals in my life. And I've seen, you know, different kinds of funerals. And I've seen some godly funerals. I've seen some funerals for people who rejected God. And uh, each one is different. Each one is unique. Uh, but, you know, I've seen, I'm thinking of some specific ones right now. Uh, people, I went to a funeral where a person rejected God. They didn't live for God. They didn't believe in God. They were successful in this life, though. They were nice people, okay? And they were looked up to, and they were prosperous in many ways. But they rejected God. And you would think, now there's a person, you know, at their funeral, 
they were, they were looked up to, they were upstanding, there were all these things, right? And, and people would have envied their lives here in this lifetime. And, and some of the funerals I'm thinking of right now, and then you go to their funeral, and almost nobody is there. And you think, well, where, where, where is everybody? And you go there, and they were, they were upstanding. I'm not, I'm not saying this is every person, you know, is like this, if they're, if they're godless. Not at all. Everyone's unique. But I just think of the ones I'm thinking of in particular. And you go to this funeral. Here's a person who led a life where everybody in this world would have kind of envied them. Like, there's an upstanding citizen. There's a prosperous, intelligent person. And at the end of their life, almost nobody was there. Is that how you want to pass your life? And then I think of some of those I know the godly, not just who call themselves Christians, but some of the godly funerals I've been to. And they might not have made a lot of money, and they might not have been, you know, made a name for themselves or whatever, but you go to their funeral, and there's a whole bunch of people there who just massively love them because they love Jesus and they love people. And there's a difference. There's an absolute difference to how they pass away. So how do we want to live? Are we going to envy the wicked? You know, 20 years ago, this, this summer uh, was my 20th year out of high school, okay? So that, 20 years, 20 years, I, that doesn't feel like 20 years to me. I'm like, 20 years? And it just went by like this, okay? 20 years from now, I'm going to be 58, okay? Those of you who are my parents' age right now, 20 years from now, you're going to be 80. Do you know how long 20 years? Some of you are going, I got to get out of here. You're depressing me. You know how long, you know how quick 20 years goes? It goes fast. 20, you, a year. So I mean, you, I'm not, this is true. Every year I'm amazed. You, you know, the more I, you know, the older I get, Christmas comes and it's, didn't we just have Christmas? Like a year just goes by like nothing. When I was a kid, it took forever. And some of you are going, this is depressing. Actually, this is a real perspective. You're going to be 40 and then you're going to be 60 and then you're going to be 80 and sometimes in the moment, it's not going to feel like it's taking long, but when you get there, you're going to realize it was very, very quick. Life is short. So before you begin envying the wicked, remember that in prayer. Remember that prayerfully, that life is short, and the time of the wicked is short, and then comes judgment. Another emphasis of David's here in Psalm 37, verse 12, he says this, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them, at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. God has a day on the calendar. It's every bit as much on that calendar. It's every bit as real as tomorrow is going to come, as Christmas is going to come again, as the seasons are going to change. Every bit as real as those dates and those calendar changes is God has a date on his calendar and it's judgment day. And God isn't worried about the godless people in this world because he sees that day clearly. And if we could see things the way he sees them, if we could see how near that day was, if we could see how real that day is, if we could see how terrible and awful that day is, we too would not be fretting about the wicked. We would be praying for them. We would not envy them. We would pray for them. We would not emulate them. We would pray for them. That is a perspective we desperately need. And when we let judgment day shape our perspective. Again, we don't let judgment day, a lot of people when they think of judgment day, they think of being mad. When we let judgment day shape our perspective, we don't get mad, we get loving, we get compassionate. We don't get mad. When, we get, when judgment day shapes our perspective, we don't start yelling at people and saying, we hate you, we're mad at you. When judgment day shapes your perspective, we get desperate, we say, Lord Jesus, save them. That's what a perspective of judgment day is supposed to do to us 
and it will save us from much envy and emulation, okay? So that's one of the big themes David wants to get across to us in this psalm is that we shouldn't fret ourselves about the wicked. We shouldn't envy them. We shouldn't emulate them because the time of the wicked is short. There's a second perspective that David wants to get across as well, and there's a parallel throughout this passage. Over and over again, he hits again and again, the time of the wicked is short, the time of the wicked is short, the time of the wicked is short. But also throughout the passage, he's going to parallel, he's going to contrast the righteous. And so a second perspective he wants to get across to us is this, that in the end, the righteous will be rewarded. So the wicked, the time is short. They might prosper now, but their, their time is short. And, and then right contrasted again and again, he wants to tell us at the end that the righteous will be rewarded. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The meek. See, there's a big switch coming. And we must not lose sight of this switch. So many Christians today are not future-minded. They're just completely present-minded. So all they can see is the godless are succeeding and it pulls them over into compromise. I want to succeed. I want to be on that side. But what we have to keep firmly in mind is the future. A big switch is coming. In this age, yes, the wicked may prosper and the righteous may suffer. Doing right won't always make you more blessed in this age. But this age is temporary and short. And at the end of this age is a big switch. And in the next age, the righteous are blessed forever. And the wicked are cast away from the Lord. And the meek will inherit the earth. There's a switch coming. And that's why David says in verse 27 to 29, you can have your reward now for a little time, or you can have your reward in the future forever. Verses 27 to 29, turn away from evil and do good. So you shall dwell forever. This is why, this is our motivation not to emulate the wicked. Why would we compromise on integrity? Why would we compromise on purity? Why would we compromise on God's law and sexuality and all these things? We shouldn't. Turn to him and do good. Why? Because by doing good here, you will dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Again and again and again, David is hammering this contrast home. But you know what? It gets even better than that. Not only will God reward us, this second perspective here, not only will God reward us forever in the future, there's also another promise here, and I want to show it to you in verse, verses 18 and 19. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. So there's that forever again. But then I want to show you a promise for now. They are not put to shame in evil times, in the days of famine, they have abundance. So this isn't talking about the future anymore. He's talking about evil times. He's talking about famine. And he says, even now, God will take care of us. So this is a really important perspective. Not only will God reward us in the future forever, but in the present, in evil times and in days of famine, he promises to take care of us now, here in the present. And that is a hugely, hugely important theme in this chapter as, as well. So you say, what does that mean, okay? If we actually break this down and meditate on it, what does it mean that God will give us abundance in days of famine? You ever thought about that as you meditate on the scripture? So clearly he's not saying that you won't experience days of famine. You will experience evil times. He said it right there. He says, it doesn't say that the righteous will be kept from evil times. It says they will not be put to shame in evil times. And it doesn't say that the righteous will be kept from days of famine, it says they will have abundance in days of famine. Well, what does that mean? How do you have abundance in days of famine? How is it that, that the godly can experience famine, but abundance at the same time? Well, it's interesting how this works, but it just works. 
Um, I, think of, I, I think a great example is my parents, Pastor Ray and, and Fran here. Um, you, look at the, you look at their life, okay? And they've been a godly example for us here at this church and our family, but uh, they have gone through a lot of stuff, okay? And they're not the only ones. Lot, God's people go through a lot of stuff. But they've been through lots of health stuff. Mom has had health, not, non-ending health stuff for 20 years. I don't know how many surgeries she's had, 10 or somewhere around 10. Uh, she leaks brain fluid. She con- continues to be in lots of pain lots of, lots of the time. And dad has some of his own health issues with nerves and back stuff, like lots of pain. And then you, you add into that all kinds of stuff they've been through over the years in ministry. How many times rejected, uh, you know, and backstabbed in ministry, and some of the really bad experiences they've had in, in, in ministry, uh, being attacked by people, whether it be out in the community, in the media, various things. They've been through lots of stuff. They've had lots of dark days. And if you just looked at it from the outside and you just looked at his life, so let's look at the health issues. Let's look at some of the financial sacrifices they've made by saying yes to God in ministry that has just been crazy. And you look at some of the stuff and you would say, wow, okay, that was a, you know, they've had some tough stuff in their life. And yet, if you talk to them, they are, they are filled with joy and purpose and love. In the midst of pain, you talk to them now, every morning they get up, they have something that many people on this earth, the vast majority of people on this earth don't have, including many Christians, they get up every morning with a strong sense of purpose and calling that God has called us to this, and this is what we're going to do, and we're here for a purpose, and we're going for it. They get up every morning with a strong sense of purpose. They have joy. They have a family, the church, not only here, but now churches around Canada and pastors who absolutely love them. If they died today, there'd be a huge funeral, and many would give up, get up and give testimonies about how much they love them and were touched by their lives. They have a rich life. In the midst of desert, there is abundance. In the midst of desert, there is abundance. See, there's a different kind of abundance that you can have even when you're in the midst of famine, and only the godly can have it. I know other people, again, I'm not speaking for all of them. I'm speaking of some specifically I know, but people who who don't love God, who reject God, and on the outside, a much easier life, a prosperous life, okay, a successful life, physically healthy, and yet, not the love not the joy, much of it empty. Now in the end, what is it that we all really want? I'll tell you what we all really want. The reason we chase money and toys and all that stuff is because what we really want is to feel happy. We think those things will give us happiness. What we really want is to feel joy and love and peace and purpose. That's what we human beings want more than anything else. Well, here's the thing. That is the reward of the godly. And so even in the midst of famine, you can have the godless live in an oasis and yet be an empty shell. And you can have the godly spend their lives in a desert and yet be rich and experience abundance. And that's what we actually all really want deep down inside. Down inside. Now, here's the thing. This doesn't happen overnight. This doesn't mean you go home today and you have your devotions. It's like, i got to be godly because I want to have a rich life. And someone had my devos once. I don't feel, I don't feel it. Okay? This is not, this is the fruit of a godly life. It is a fruit that is born out of living over years and persisting in godliness. If I, and I have done this, I have a couple of apple trees in my yard, but if you plant a baby apple tree, you don't get apples. It's not you put the tree in the ground and where's my apples? That's what a lot of Christian people are like today and young people and especially. It's like, I have my devos today and I'm not feeling the joy. Sorry. You plant an apple tree, you take care of it, 
And over time, you start to get apples. And every year, and then you get more apples and more apples. You take care of it, water and sunlight and nutrients, and more and more apples as you go over the years. What Pastor Ray and Fran are experiencing, for example, and many other godly people is the fruit of a life of godliness, of sacrifice for him, of serving him, of loving him. And over a lifetime of tilling that soil, you ex- what you get is abundance in days of famine. You get a rich life, a rich, rich life. And that's really what we want. And it's part of the promise here in Psalm 37. The most famous verse in this whole chapter is verse 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What are the deepest desires of the human heart? I just told you what they are. See, this verse here is not a promise of like, the deepest desires of my heart. Sweet, I want a new car. Uh, sweet, I want to win the lottery. Sweet, I want whatever. This is not a promise, obviously, of that. And yet, it's a real promise. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Okay? But what are, he's created us. What are the deepest desires of the human heart? It's what I just talked about. All of us. We want to have a life of purpose to know that I have meaning here. I want to feel loved. I want to, have a, I want to be the kind of person that at my funeral, people felt loved by me and they loved me in return. That's the kind of life every one of us here wants. I want to feel joy, to feel happy, to be at peace. Well, that is the gift and a promise for those who delight themselves in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Spend a lifetime pursuing him and serving him and ser- instead of yourself and loving him and praying to him and spending time in his word. Delight yourself in the Lord as a lifestyle and persist in it. And he will give you the desires of your heart, the deepest desires, love and joy and purpose. That's the fruit of a godly, of a godly life. Even if it's in the midst of a desert, it's awesome. And of course, one more thing that goes with the desires of your heart is obviously what this includes too is if you are a godly person and you love Jesus, it means you can bring him any desire in your heart. Okay, you can bring him whether you're single or married or childless or, or whatever. You can, the, the various things that we deeply, deeply want that sometimes we just feel like, I'm, I don't know if I can ask that. I don't know if I can talk to him about that. You can talk to him about anything. You are his son. You are his daughter. He wants you to come to him with the desires of your heart. And he wants to touch you in that place. Amazing. Well, I want to finish with the final point now. How should we live? How should we live? And this is all in Psalm 37. He's got practical advice for us on how we should live. How should we live? Okay, he's given us these perspectives, okay? In the midst of a world where the wicked often prosper and the godly often suffer, he's shown us that perspective number one, the time of the wicked is short. Perspective number two, God's going to reward us forever in the future and he's going to take care of us now. But now the third thing he's good, David talks about in this chapter is how should we live? So, okay, he's given us the perspective, but now what do we do? What do we do? Well, I want to finish with just a couple of verses here, just awesome verses. How do we live in the midst of a wicked world and a godless culture? And David had thought deeply about this as well. Verse 3, he says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Instead of being consumed with anger and worry and frustration and envy, we need to pour our energy into showing the world a different way. So yes, feel righteous anger. When God's laws are trampled in the streets and when lies are winning out, feel righteous anger, bring that to God. Now turn your energies by the power of the Spirit 
and say, I'm not going to spend all my time being overwhelmed about this. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to show the world a different way. Instead of being frustrated, I'm going to show the world a different way. Do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. I love that. Befriend faithfulness. Befriend faithfulness. If you are one of the godly, be a loyal person. Be a person of integrity. Be a person that never talks bad about someone behind their back, who always hopes the best. The most faithful friend, the most faithful employee, the most faithful boss. Just be super faithful and persevering, kind and loyal. Befriend faithfulness, loyalty and honesty. Now, someone might be sitting there and they're going, but that's not how the world works. If I do that, people will take advantage of me. My business won't be profitable, etc., etc., etc. Look at verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. I love that. Your job is not to make everything turn out good for you. Your job is to commit your way to the Lord. And if you commit your way to the Lord, he will act on your behalf. You won't need to work on your behalf. He will work on your behalf and he will act. Verse 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. In other words, he's going to defend you. He's going to take care of you. He says, that's my job if you let me do it. Your job is commit your way to him. His job is if you do that, if you commit your way to him, his job is I defend you, I stick up for you, I take care of you. But the if is I've got to commit my way to him. If I do my job, he does his, everything else. Commit your way to the Lord. Now you say, what does it mean to commit your way to the Lord? Some people might think that committing your way to the Lord just means uh, praying, God, I commit my way to you. But committing your way to the Lord is not a formulaic prayer you pray. Committing your way to the Lord is a decision you make in your heart that in a given area or a given situation or a given decision, you make a decision in your heart that in this thing, I am going to do it right. I'm going to do things God's way. I'm going to do them the right way no matter what. I'm not going to do things, and you're not going to necessarily do what you want to do. You're not going to necessarily do what other people want you to do. You're not going to necessarily do what's most profitable. You're not necessarily going to do any of those things. You might do some of those things. It might be what other people want you to do. It might be the most profitable thing. I'm not saying those things are bad in and of themselves. But in this area or in your life, you're not going to do things based on that. You're always going to do the right thing. You're going to obey God's law. You're going to have integrity. You're going to do right even if it hurts you. You're going to keep your promises even when it hurts you. That's what it means to commit your way to the Lord. You're committing to doing things God's way. That's what it means to commit your way to the Lord. And if you commit, I'm going to do the right thing. Even if this hurts me, even if they don't like me, even if I lose money, I'm going to do it God's way. That's committing your way to the Lord. And if you commit your way to the Lord, then he will act. He will take care of you. That's an incredible promise. Let's go to prayer. Let's take a moment, finish this message, and we're going to sing some worship. And I want to just give the Holy Spirit a moment to speak to us here this morning. And maybe there's an area of your life, and if you have a pen and paper, you do that, or if you want to write on your phone, whatever. But I want to give the Holy Spirit, maybe there's something in this message, a promise he wants to drive home for you. Or maybe on this whole commit your way to the Lord thing. Maybe there's an area of your life where you have not committed your way to the Lord. So I just want to give the Holy Spirit a chance to speak to us and say, Lord, 
show me an area like that. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to just have, you know, about a minute of silence. You write down whatever he shows you, and then we're going we're gonna to sing and we're going to worship. Holy Spirit, I thank you for these amazing promises that if we commit our way to you, you will act. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would show us this morning any area of our life where our lives are not committed to you, any areas of our life where we are living for ourselves instead of for your glory. And just any thoughts, if he shows you anything, you just write it down. We'll just take a moment and listen. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your goodness. Thank you for your many promises here in this chapter. Thank you for Psalm 37. Thank you for David feeling many of the same things that we feel. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, you would teach us more and more this week what it means to commit our way to you, what it means to trust in you instead of to envy. Would you give us a perspective of how short this life is that we will live for you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.